Open your Bibles to the book of Jude. If there was a title for today's sermon, it would be, She Ever Shall Prevail. The topic of today's sermon is going to be manifold. Spiritual warfare, preservation of the saints, sola scriptura, and pastoral ministry. We're going to be looking at the next two verses in Jude, Jude 3 and 4. And this is somewhat of a thesis for today's sermon. Because the world is arrayed against the Lord and against His anointed, Jesus Christ, they likewise are against us, the church. However, as the body of Christ, we can be assured that victory is already ours. For Jesus Christ has already overcome the world for us. Nevertheless, the foes of God continue to rage against us. But rest assured, in this temporary tribulation, God has given to his chosen seed sufficient protection against the devil and his seed. As the truth rings out in the hymn that we sung this morning, the church's one foundation, she will ever prevail. If you're keeping notes, it's going to be in three parts. Number one, the man. Number two, the word. And number three, the foe. Under number one, the man, we'll be looking at the appointed instrument of God's protection. That'll be 3A. Then in two, we'll look at the word, the appointed means of God's protection, 3B. And then thirdly, the foe, the appointed opponent of God's protection. That's verse four. So with your finger now in Jude, read with me, starting in verse three. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us ask him one more time to help us. Father, we ask that you would help us that you would give us the spirit to guide us in the interpretation, in the application of this word. I thank you for providing it for us this morning. Lord, may it all be to your praise. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, shortly before losing his life for Jesus Christ by Roman execution, the Apostle Paul, while imprisoned in Rome, wrote to Pastor Timothy. Who, who remained in Ephesus. 
in his second letter to Timothy, the apostle sought to stir up Timothy to the faithful and diligent discharge of his duty as a minister of the gospel, urging him to remain vigilant in protecting the scriptural treasure trove, the deposit of faith against false teachers and their errors until Christ returns in glory. And it's with this context in mind that we read what very well may have been the Apostle Paul's last words to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus. Paul says this, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the, the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That was the words of the Apostle Paul to his spiritual child in the faith, Pastor Timothy in Ephesus. Now, I believe this apostolic command was not just vital for Timothy and his ministry as an elder in Ephesus in the first century, but for all of us today. Even though this is a peculiar charge given to ministers of the gospel, it is also generally applied to all believers who are commanded by the Apostle Peter to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's not just for pastors. That's for everybody who believes in Christ in this room. And I believe that is what Jude, the slave of Christ, as we read last week, was concerned with as well. Guarding the faith, that sacred deposit of Scripture, from those who would seek to steal it and corrupt it, all to the injury and attempted defeat of the bride of Christ. And so today's message will show us how our Father in Heaven has chosen to foil not only their plans, but the plans of the devil. That is we, what we are going to be reading about this morning in these two verses in Jude. But before we begin an exposition of those two verses, I want to have a little excursus on historical theology. What is historical theology? We may have heard it. We certainly talked about historical study in our men's group this past week, and the women will be talking about historical theology, no doubt, in their group as we consider this new book about a doctrine that is being recovered. So what is historical theology? One excellent voice on historical theology is someone named G.P. Fisher. If you want a good book on historical theology, look up G.P. Fisher. And here's what he says about historical theology. He says, historical theology is the history of doctrine and the recording of the series of attempts made in successive periods to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions. That's what historical theology is. It's the history of doctrine that is recorded in a series of attempts made throughout church history to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions. 
Historical theology is based upon the confidence in the clarity of Scripture and God's desire to preserve the truth. Those two things are necessary for historical theology. The clarity of Scripture, that we can understand it in the first place. And secondly, that God desires to preserve that truth. Let's take a closer look at Timothy's address, or Paul's address to Timothy. Please, if you're able, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and put your finger in verse 12. And listen again what Paul says to Timothy and how it interlocks with historical theology. That scripture is able to be understood and that God desires for its preservation. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, starting in verse 12, so you can see it now with your own eyes. You've heard it. Now read it with me. I know whom I have believed, says Paul, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Then he gives Timothy this charge. Retain the standard of sound words, Timothy, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Listen, Timothy, guard it. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Do you see God's desire to preserve truth? The apostolic declaration of God's decree to preserve doctrine. Paul says, I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That was the apostolic declaration. Then he gives this apostolic charge again to Timothy to preserve and protect. Retain the standard or the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. What do you think that pattern of sound words was? the scriptures no doubt it's developed teaching no doubt the apostle Paul had explained to Timothy had interpreted scripture for him not just giving him scripture and said here Timothy you figure this out you figure out what Exodus was about you figure out what Genesis was about you figure out how Jesus fits into all that. No, it's recorded for us in Scripture, but the Apostle Paul and all the Apostles were teaching. Just as I and Pastor Perkins teach to you. They taught them a pattern of sound words. It was developed teaching. And again, historical theology is observing the record of how this has been accomplished by the Spirit working in men historically. If you're a student of church history at all, you see development in doctrine, don't you? You see there was a battle for the doctrine of Christology. There was a battle for the doctrine of salvation. There was a battle at the Reformation for the doctrine of Scripture and the gospel. Historical theology is the process of clarifying theology by the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, Timothy sa or Paul says to Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So we have clarity of the word. We have, we have the objectivity of the truth. And we have the preservation of that truth through the Holy Spirit. Now listen here. This is the point. 
This should lead us to doxological praise. Historical theology, the study of doctrine through church history, makes visible the way Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. I'll read it one more time. Historical theology makes visible the way that Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. Now, with that brief lesson on what historical theology is and how we see it in church history and the importance of it, let us now look at our text. The man, the chosen instrument of God's protection. Listen to what Timothy says in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you. And we'll talk about what he writes instead of what he was desiring to write at first. Let's look at this first part, 3A. First, he starts out by saying, Beloved. Now, we've seen that time and time again in the, in the epistle of 1 John. He constantly recalling his readers, his little children, his beloved. Certainly, it's a heartfelt declaration. I believe it's also a pastoral declaration, a pastoral love. We don't know who Jude was writing to originally as per a particular congregation, but we do know that he was a minister of the gospel. We'll talk about that more where we've seen it in other books. But the first address, beloved, is a heartfelt address. Jude, also in this heartfelt address, is drawing a line in the sand. He's drawing it right here because the rest of the letter will have two sides, two opposing sides that are drawn, I believe, by the writer Jude. Judah's drawing a line in the sand. He wants the saints to know what side they are on. He calls them beloved. And that's no wonder, because he already said that they were beloved in God. Look back at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called beloved in God the Father. You know what Judah's saying? You're beloved to me. Because you're beloved to my father. And we've said this so many times in the past that there's a supernatural bond that believers have one to another. When we see videos of our brothers and sisters huddled in Ukraine in a subway singing a hymn, we have a supernatural love for them. Have you ever met them? I haven't. But I call them brother. I call them sister. I love them. I bear their burdens in prayer. I know you do too. In a sense, Jude is saying the same thing in the beginning of his address by calling the saints beloved. Beloved. He wants them to know what side of the line that they are on. They are beloved of God. They're beloved of Jude. He also wants them to know what side of the line he is on. Beloved, you're my brother. You're my sister. I'm beloved of God too. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, just like you. And I believe in the next line we'll get to, he'll be showing who's on the other side of that line that he's drawing in the sand right now. So he says, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, 
I felt the necessity to write to you about something else, is what he's going to go on to say. But before we get to what he writes, what he has desired now to write, I want to look at what he means by, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, we don't have much information to go on of what he was desiring to write about in the first place. We have this short line. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, we know that he was eager to write. He was making every effort to do so. And about our common salvation. There's been some speculation about what is meant here. And we can say, well, in one sense, there is now a common salvation between all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have more spiritual points in, the, in a treasury of merit, as Rome would teach, than one of you as my brother and sister in Christ. As we've heard before, the ground is level at the cross. When I call you my brother, you have the same legal standing in the courtroom of heaven that I have. When I call you my sister, you have the same legal standing in the courtroom of heaven as I have. We have a common salvation. We have the same Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father and Lord of all. Does that start sounding like something that somebody else wrote in an apostolic doctrine? There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We have deduced from our previous message that Jude is most likely writing to a predominantly Jewish audience because he's going to be talking about very Jewish things from the Old Testament very shortly as we go through this study. Maybe some of them are struggling with this. I'm of the physical seed of Abraham. And these Gentiles are second class Christians. No, no, no. Judah saying, we have a common salvation. And I desired to write to you about that. Maybe that was his intention. We don't know the context per se of why he desired to write that original message. But we do know all those things that I mentioned are true. And so again, let's see an illustration of where these things are true. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I can only do this because my brother has already preached through these. And I'm not stealing any of his sermons. Ephesians chapter 4. Start at verse 4. By way of reminder... What a blessed thing it is, brothers and sisters, by the way, to be going through two books of the Bible. We can see how the one divine author is at work through all 66 books. We can see the connections. That's a blessing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes this to the Ephesian congregation. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, he might have added, we have a common salvation. But there's more than just a common salvation. In this verse, we have a 
pastoral responsibility. Remember, this is under the heading of the appointed instrument of God's protection. How is God protecting his church? By an appointed instrument. A man. Scroll down. Scroll down. Put your finger down to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's danger, brothers and sisters, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. No, I have given gifts to the church, God says, to protect against that very thing. They have a ministry. Their job is for the equipping of the saints. Their job is for the work of service. There is an appointed man. He is to be a watchman on the tower, keeping the sheep safe. That is my desire. Pastor Perkins' desire is the saints in this room to keep you safe, to protect you. Not only to feed you and to nurture you and comfort you and encourage you, but to keep you safe, to protect you from false doctrine, to have you persevere in the pattern of sound words that has been given to us in the scriptures. This is the minister's responsibility to the sheep. Pray for us in that. And again, I think... Paul will say the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And that's what comes next. The Word. Look at the next part of 3b. This is where Jude tells us what he has now desired to write to the faithful, to those beloved of God the Father. That he's going to give an appeal, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. This idea of appealing is a strong language. I appeal to you. Not just I encourage you, I strongly encourage you to contend earnestly not half-heartedly, agonizingly. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is a contending and a striving for doctrinal purity given to Timothy as a pastor. And I believe that Jude is saying the same thing to those of the faithful which read this letter and heard it. To contend, to strive for doctrinal purity, for objective truth from the Old Testament, no doubt. That was the scripture of the early church, but also from the New Testament. They knew that there was scripture being written. They knew that there would be new covenant documents to accompany the old covenant documents. 
This is objective truth. And it was a single handing down, not to be repeated in subsequent dispensations of church history. That's not what historical theology is. We get new, fresh revelation from God. No, historical theology, remember, is the working out with more and more clarity what has already been deposited in the scriptures. That is the once and for all handed down to the saints language. Just as Christ has died once and for all, the scriptures, special revelation has been given once for all. And it's been handed down to the saints. If I asked you the question, what advantage would Paul say the Jew has? In Romans, he was being asked that very question. If Jews and Gentiles are on same ground and God made promises to the Jews, what advantage is there to even being a Jew? They're being persecuted. The temple is going to be destroyed. They're being run out of town. What advantage does a Jew have? Remember the first thing that Paul says? Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? What benefit of the circumcision? Paul says, well, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Unlike any other nation, the Jews had divine revelation. The Jews had scripture. The Jews had what was theonoustos, which means God breathed. Nobody else had anything that was God breathed. Oh, they had revelation. The Greeks had revelation, but they didn't have theonoustos revelation. The oracles of God were given to the Jews, and Paul says that's the first advantage they had. But have you ever thought of the connection with what Judah's saying here with that? Judah's saying, for us, Gentiles now and Jews, the church, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. What advantage does it have to be in the church? A non-believer might say. And you could say, well, first of all, we've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, that also poses an interesting question. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The church is entrusted with the oracles of God. Is there a connection between Israel and the church? Indeed, that's another sermon. But 2 Timothy 3 points this out, I think, in context of the danger that was present. The Apostle Paul points to the oracles of God, but he also points out the danger that exists. So flip to 2 Timothy, if you're able, back to where we were in chapter 3, or listen. Because Paul says something that's very much in context of what I think Jude is saying here. But realize this, Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But realize this, 
that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. This is what Jude is going to be talking about. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's going to be very important in Jude's argument next. The Apostle Paul says, avoid such men as these, Timothy. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Isn't that interesting? These men who have crept into the church, I would say false teachers. One of the examples he gives is crept in, entered households and taken captive weak women. There is certainly something that's going to connect with Jude here as it concerns what these false teachers were taking pleasure in. They were lover of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And it has something to do with taking advantage of weak women. But evil men, in verse 13, and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in these things you have learned and become convinced of knowing, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from the childhood you have known the sacred writings, the oracles of God, the deposit of faith, the treasure trove of truth and scripture, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Yes, the Old Testament, which Timothy was brought up in, was sufficient to give him salvation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Go figure. The Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, therefore, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I believe this has a direct contact, uh, direct reference to what Paul is saying in Ephesians about the gifts that Christ gives to his church for the protection of her. The man of God who Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 3 in the context is the minister in the church. Surely there's an application to all of us, but it is a charge to pastors in the church. The man of God is given the word of God so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's that equipped language again that Paul says that ministers are equipped with the word. And so here's the application. Scripture itself is the sole infallible rule for our faith and practice. Amen? The sole infallible rule for our faith and practice. But that truth has to be interpreted. Amen? Do false teachers and heretics use the Scriptures? Historical theology 
is the record of the series of attempts made in successive periods to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions, says J.P. Fisher. So, you know what also serves to protect the church? Creeds and confessions, they serve as well to protect the church. There are four that are historic. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, the Athanasian Creed. And in addition to these creeds, there are a host of confessions that were born out of the Reformation. Now listen, confessional traditions do not prove in and of themselves to be infallible standards. Amen to that? That is something that is often misunderstood by those who are visiting Reformed churches that hold confessions, that, they, that these congregations hold these standards up to be on par or even above Scripture, and shame on those who functionally use confessions to be above Scripture. The creeds do not speak as an infallible standard, nor do the confessions. They are subordinate standards. But listen, they are standards nonetheless. They have authority in the local church. They are indeed binding and authoritative where they agree with Scripture. That is the key. Our confession, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, the Athanasian Creed, is authoritative and binding on you, brothers and sisters, as far as it agrees with Scripture. Why? Because it's Scripture that you are bound to. Remember what Luther said. Here I stand. Confessions and creeds evidence fallible men striving with the infallible word, and the Spirit is working in and through the historic confessions of faith in varied measure to guard and protect the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. They are a product of historical theology. So we dare not shed confessions and creeds because we think that we are to just hold the scriptures alone. Because guess what? If you hold the scriptures alone and you shed the historic creeds and confessions of the church, who is now interpreting the Bible for you? Who is the authority? Who is the one? You. Remember our takeaway of historical theology. That historical theology makes visible the way Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. And we can see this work of the Spirit through these historic creeds and confessions, which are indeed products of historical theology. But if this is so, then what's the danger? And I believe in the context of Paul's instruction to Timothy about the scriptures being the only God-breathed standard in our possession, he told him and us of the danger. Paul said it this way, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, Timothy. These men were in the church. And I believe they're in the church today, the visible church. And Jude is reminding his readers of that very danger now. This is our third and final section, the foe. The 
appointed opponent of God's protection. Look at verse 4. This is why Jude is writing this. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the reason why Jude gives us why he, deter what, why he changed to, to write what he had determined to write originally. This is what the word for means at the beginning of verse 4. Again, we know this interpretive um, slogan. When you see the word for, you ask what it's there for. So why does, Paul, uh, why does Jude write for here? Because he's giving the reason why he's writing now about defending the faith, about contending earnestly for the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. Because for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Jesus warned about this in the gospel, didn't he? John 10, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. What are you saying, Jesus? There's going to be thieves and robbers who come into the fold, not through the door? Amen. And who is the door? Jesus Christ. He is the door into the sheepfold. So how did they come in? As Jesus would say, they come in some other way. As Jude says, they crept in. Long beforehand, these false teachers were marked out for this condemnation. What does this mean? They were marked out much in commentaries that discuss this. I believe there is possible connection to other works. But the long beforehand is pointing to something that was not recent. We heard in 1 John how the Apostle Paul, while he was in Ephesus in the book of Acts, was warning about imposters who would rise up in their own ranks, right? Men from your own number will rise and lead many astray. But does that fit into a context of they were marked out long ago? It was only a matter of years that Paul gave that warning in the book of Acts and to those elders, those overseers, those bishops in Ephesus. So when I hear long ago, I'm thinking of the Old Testament, that these men were marked out in the Old Testament. And although we can search the Old Testament and find places where God had prophetically warned of false teachers, no doubt, who would creep in and do such things. And even though extra canonical books, such as the book of Enoch, which we'll talk about in future sermons, talk about men who've crept into the church unnoticed. It could be that Jude is thinking of that, considering he's going to be quoting from the book of Enoch later in our sermon series. But I think it's safely assumed that what he means by long ago, they were marked out for this condemnation, again, has to do with God's decree. I think it highlights God's decree. When were you marked out for salvation? Long ago. And when were these false teachers marked out for condemnation? Long ago. This language of being marked out connotes writing in a book. When we go to the book of Revelation, we read about something called the Lamb's Book of Life, where all believers have their names written. 
I believe that Jude is drawing upon the same idea that God has a book and he has marked out those whom he has chosen. He has appointed as being their opponents, the opponents of the church. Remember what Jesus said of Judas? Was it decreed that Judas would do the things that he did? Was Judas appointed to destruction? He was. Jesus said the terrible, fearful words. It would have been better if he had never been born. Think about the weight of that comment coming from the second person of the Trinity about a man who was appointed to destruction. And it has bearing because Judas wanted to do what he did. It wasn't as if Judas said, no, 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 no. I know I'm, I'm appointed to this. God has ordained that this would happen, but I don't want to do it. And this is the struggle we have as Calvinists, right? When people who aren't even in our tradition of Reformed theology, holding the doctrines of grace, they can't get around the idea, even as Christians, that God would appoint some to eternal life and appoint some to destruction. Ignoring the fact that those who are on that wide road leading to destruction want to be there. Like Pilgrim's Progress, those who are on their way to Vanity Fair, those who are on their way to destruction, those who remained in the city of destruction, like Bunyan's own family, they wanted to stay. And so even though these false teachers were appointed long beforehand for this condemnation, they have chosen it. They desired it. Not the condemnation, but the false doctrine, the heresies, and the licentiousness. The licentiousness. Remember what Paul was saying to Timothy? These are ungodly men who are lovers of pleasure. And there's this context of creeping into women's houses. This is lewd activity. John talked about it in his epistle, being given over to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. These mark out these false teachers. There is an impropriety about their relations. And he's going to be talking about that, given examples from the Old Testament about Sodom and Gomorrah. About angels who did not keep their proper abode but were given over to sexual passions to do things that were unlawful, licentiousness. And in doing so, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn there, but I had mentioned that Jude parallels 2 Peter. And there's a debate about which book came first because they're so similar. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Now, I think that's interesting because Peter is saying they will be among you. I think Jude is saying they're here. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be mingled. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter is saying something very similar to what Jude is saying here. These men have crept in. They were long before marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly persons. You can see it by their activity, their licentiousness. They're condemned persons, marked out by the decree of God long ago, marked out by their actions. They use grace as an excuse to sin. Could this be the group that Paul is arguing against in Romans that said, well, if grace abounds where sin abounds, should we sin all the more? May it never be. These were the antichrists that I think John were talking about. They went out from us to show they were never truly of us. 1 John 2.19 These are they that have the spirit of antichrist. 1 John 4.3 They deny Christ, our only master and Lord. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy. They hold a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. I believe when Paul says they have denied the power of godliness, it connects with they have denied their only master and Lord Jesus Christ, because it's union with him that gives the only godliness that's available. You have no godliness in and of yourself. Your godliness comes as a result of being united with Christ. And they have denied Christ, so they have a form of godliness that looks like they're godly, but they have denied its power. They've denied Christ, their only master and Lord. Avoid such men as these, Paul says to Timothy. He also says the same thing to Titus, Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Unlike the man of God, the minister of God, who's been ordained by God to minister and to protect God's sheep, who's been equipped by the Spirit for the Scriptures for every good work, these men are good for no good work. They're detestable. They're disobedient. They're worthless. Are these the proto-Gnostics of the first century? Are these the antinomians who say we don't need to follow the law? We know this. They're they're, they have unbelief and hardened hearts. They're not members of the new covenant. They're imposters and they're antichrists. And brothers and sisters, they are in the church today. What will protect us? The scriptures. The appointed man. The appointed word. This title was, She Ever Shall Prevail. I lifted that from the first hymn we sung this morning, The Church's One Foundation. She Ever Shall Prevail is the church. Why? Because of the man, the pastor, elder, and overseer, who is the instrument of God's protection, who has the word, the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit's work through such men in church history as the means of God's protection. Against who? The foe. Opponents of God's protection. Those who have crept in, seeking to lead astray, corrupt and soil the purity of the bride of Christ, the church. In our call to worship, we read Psalm 27. What a providential psalm. Well, it's providential for this sermon as well. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. The church is one foundation. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping. 
contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale. Against or foe or traitor. And our title, she ever shall prevail. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word out of Jude. We thank you for the clarion call that it is for us in the church, not only as ministers, but as members of the body of Christ, to defend the faith, to hold the faith, to pray for those that you have appointed to teach it and to retain the sound standard of words so that your flock may be protected and fed and nourished. Oh Lord, you are so gracious to give us gifts from heaven from the hand of your son Jesus Christ for the building up of the saints so that we may be presented to him blameless, pure, spotless not because of our works not because of our works but because of his and because in him we are pure and spotless and blameless for he has given us his righteousness. Praise be to God. Let us see this visible now as we continue our worship. And may this truth linger with us, not just today, but throughout our pilgrimage on our way to your throne as we await the return of your son in glory for our foes are many. But we can rest because you have given us protection and the victory is already ours in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.